0: presentation.
1: everyone welcome to the episode of the florida sound archive podcast i'm your host jeff kaiser and for today's interview i have with me pete gordon who's been in a lot of bands over the years especially in south florida we'll talk about a lot of those bands as we get into the interview pete welcome on in how are you i'm doing well thanks for having me it's a pleasure. I've been looking forward to having you on the podcast for quite some time, and today's the day. So let's go ahead and dive right in, because uh, right. you're
0: have you're still a very busy musician, is that right? I try to be, yeah. I try to be active in music still, yeah.
1: One of the things I notice about your music these days is you've definitely been playing a lot more guitar, and also I saw you playing drums on one of your bands.
0: That's correct. Uh, I... Always wanted to be a drummer, and over the years of being in bands, you know, as, as the bass player, as soon as the drummer got up from the kit, you jump behind it and play your little do-do-bat, do-bat, bat, do-bat beats, and uh, just always wanted to play drums, and then finally um, got the opportunity with some friends here in uh, North Carolina, and we started a little band just for fun, and it's turned into something pretty pretty good, actually, so... Um, I switched to guitar uh, around 2010 uh, when I moved out to Oregon and I didn't bring any of my gear with me and uh, started a, just a little punk rock band uh, from some dudes in the kitchen where I was a bartender and uh, never looked back. had haven't played bass since. Oh, wow. And you played yeah. bass in all of your Florida bands. Pretty much. Yeah.
1: Let's go back to that early period. Firstly, how did you learn how to even play music? Where'd you get those chops from?
0: Well, uh, I come from a long line of drummers, Uh, my father and brother were both drummers, but they uh, were very heavy into like uh, salsa, merengue, like growing up in my house, that's pretty much all I ever heard. Um, My parents were salsa dancers and, you know, uh, big family occasions, Thanksgiving, Christmas, uh, after dinner all of the kungas and timbales and cowbells and shit would come out of the garage and they'd sit out on the patio and pretty much just jam for hours. So, uh, you know, I always had that rhythm in instilled in me from a young age. And uh, I, I, you know, had influences in the neighborhood of other drummers always wanted to be a drummer. And I came to the realization that there was no way I was ever getting a drum set. And uh, my good buddy, Chris Hawkins was like, man, everybody plays drums. You should play bass. Nobody plays bass. Um, so at that time I had been working in the old Coral Springs mall, you know, the one on sample and uh, yeah, it's, it's now the charter school, right? Yeah. It has been for a while, but I that know. used to be like, it used to be a pretty heavy, like metal hangout, uh, with the arcade there and the movie theater and the little courtyard, uh, Sid's records and Jack's music. So Uh, I went into Jack's and I rented a bass for $25 a week. And, uh, I think I was 12, 11, 12, something like that. Took some lessons from, uh, from, uh, at first Adam Cole, who was a legendary South Florida guitar player. I don't know what bands he played in, but if, uh, if you grew up in the eighties and took guitar lessons, you probably know who Adam Cole is. Uh, and then eventually Dan Fontana. And Barry Alpert um, and Bougalard, you know, practiced in my neighborhood. Uh, so those guys and 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 Hawkins lived in the same neighborhood as, as Dan Fontana. So took lessons from them and then just uh, started playing in bands. Did ever get a chance to see M. Bougelard back in that back in that period? Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, with several different lineups, you know, before Jordy was in the band when Craig Israel was the singer. Um, uh, George, of course, his house was maybe three blocks from mine. Um, so we used to go over there all the time and, and his brother, Alex and me were good buddies. Um, so yeah, I used to see them practice. I've seen their shows.
1: From what you can remember, were there any other bands around that area that sounded like them at that time?
0: Yeah. I mean, um, in those years from like 84, 85, 86, like metal was pretty much the dominant like scene a uh, punk punk was there, you know, you had your skater kids and your punk kids, uh, but metal and, especially Coral Springs and Tamarack and, uh, metal was, was, you know, pretty popular. So I remember, um, Joey Schnessel was the original drummer for malevolent creation and, uh, they lived around the corner from a buddy. So we would, we would go over to the garage and watch malevolent play. Uh, you had the Ethiopians, you had panic, uh demonomacy um, yeah you had a ton of of, of local metal bands um, and joe nessel wasn't he was in hellwitch yeah he was in hellwitch yeah yeah, yeah 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 i used yeah, to, I gra- to see them I used play to,
1: too i used to grab coffee with him and some other dudes at starbucks for a for uh-huh. like, for many years and we would he would tell stories about the early hellwitch days and all that oh so.
0: man i saw them at the thrash can with cynic carcass and death like one of the two times that I ever got to see death play. Uh, It was, it was pretty awesome. (laughs) I bet. What was that like? Uh, You know,
1: seeing that, seeing a band like death, who is, you know, one of the most well-known death metal bands ever come out of Florida.
0: You know, I was blown away by them. Uh, Again, another Joey Schnessel story. We were hanging out at the gas station, you know, uh, smoking cigarettes, being cool. And he pulls up and and he's got a 5.0 Mustang, And uh, the doors open up and I just hear like, born dead to this world. And I'm like, what is that? And he's like, oh, death. So the next day I went to Record Bar and brought uh, Scream Bloody Gore and Leprosy. And I was like, this is fucking awesome. Um, So, yeah, they were great. I think I actually saw them once where they pulled the PA because they were playing too long. And you could still hear Chuck screaming, you know, over the amps with no microphones, you know, with no PA. It was, that's pretty intense. Yes, it is.
1: Yeah, totally. Uh, I want to go back to the first band you, you were in. You mentioned that you were what? In, in, was that in like middle school at the time or early high school?
0: Yeah. Zero hour. Uh, was started in middle school. Um, it was myself and Chris Hawkins, uh, Travis Cromwell, Andy Kanner and Paul Cordova. Uh, and we, we played mostly covers in those days. You know, we did some Metallica, some some Megadeth stuff, maybe some Anthrax. And we had maybe one or two originals, you know, real silly uh, kind of basic stuff. We only played one show, which was uh, my first show. And that was at Club Soda in Coral Springs. Um, are you familiar with that one? I've only heard stories about Club Soda. Okay. I was too young to experience it. Yeah, it was like a teen club. I think it was something before. For that, I can't remember the name. I don't think it was Nepentha. I think it was something else. Um, but yeah, they they used to have shows. So we played <laughs> a battle of the bands uh, against a band called Tempest Fugit, uh, and the rumor had it is these dudes used to spray WD forty on their guitar necks so that they could shred faster. I hope somebody from this podcast like knows them and sees that and like, no, it's not true uh needless to say they won um you know they were a little older and more established i mean we were like 11 and 12 years old and uh maybe three or four days before the show and he was like my parents are taking me to the keys i can't go so we got uh josh capular no not josh capular what's i can't remember uh we got somebody to fill in on drums and, and in like two days you know uh so we weren't tight and it was you know it was it was a travesty but hey we got to play and i saw people moshing and i think uh um robin from demonomacy like fell and broke her ankle so it was it was a good time <laughs>
1: <laughs> what did your parents think about you being in a band like that at that time
0: um i think that they were they were happy that i had an album and i was playing music and doing something like that uh they did not agree with the style of music uh, you know, my my brother and sister grew up in the in the '60s. My brother went to Woodstock, you know, so they definitely know about rock and roll and shit like that. But you know, heavy metal in those days kind of had a bad rap. You had the Satanic Panic and everybody suing Twisted Sister and Ozzy, and uh, you know, uh, so there was a little bit of contention of as far as what I was playing. But my parents always supported me playing music. You know, um, they were they were definitely behind me.
1: That's well, good to hear. And anyway, you never I think- came out
0: for the shows though,
1: so they never saw you play in
0: any of your bands you were in. I don't think so. Uh, we used to practice in my garage uh, in the in the Ego Trip years, and you know most of the people in Ego Trip were like skinheads, CSMP, Grudge. Uh, so there's always a running joke. If any time I see Tommy Sheridan, it would be my dad be like, Peter, another one of your bald friends are here. You know, and uh, he said, like, we sounded like a bad bar mitzvah band or something. You know, (laughs) Uh, that's 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 about all the comments I got.
1: That's hilarious. So I think one of the things, too, uh, because you mentioned Ego Trip and uh, was that the first like real serious band that you were in where you actually were playing original songs?
0: Yeah, I'd like to think so. Um, So uh, Hawkins and I were always kind of a core uh, you know musicians playing together and, and even before like he may have just started playing guitar we would sit in his bedroom and like I would bang on a fan and a phone book as drums and he would play like guitar riffs and uh, you know I was um, I'm a year older than him so you know when I when I became a freshman uh, he was still in middle school um, so zero hour kind of you know dissipated and then uh, I was going to school with like Rich Thurston, uh, who was an ego trip. And, and that's where I, you know, ninth grade is where I met like Chris Goldbach, Spikey and Brian Johnson, Scott Norman and all those guys. They were, I don't know if Lester was still a senior, maybe that year. Uh, I don't know. They were like the cool punk rock kids and they hung out by the elevator, you know? So was this Tara uh, This is Tara Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so being a musician and, and you know, and, and just kind of being around in whatever scene there was, you know, the Coral the Coral Springs Mall, the Coral Square Mall, um, you know, I kind of knew those guys. They were older kids. But uh, once once I went to high school, you know, we started becoming friends. So, yeah, Ego Trip, I guess, would have been the first, like, real band writing originals. Um, it's when I kind of started to transition from – being a metal head getting more into like hardcore um and and different styles of music at the same time you know like ninth ninth grade uh the summer before ninth grade was the first time i really experimented with cannabis and like uh would go to parties with like surfer dudes and it was like the first time i heard bob marley and like the next few years of my life, everything I owned was red, green, and gold. You know, <laughs> and like started listening to you know like twenty four seven spies and uh, more bad brains, and uh, getting into even bands like Psychophunkapus, and like there was this this really weird crossover like metal funk thing, even before like Infectious Grooves became a thing. Um, so yeah, my musical taste started changing a little bit in high school. I know when I had Judah Mayo on the
1: podcast, he was reminiscing about his time at Taravella, and you kind of remembered you as like, as like the cool punk rocker or metalhead who had all the, all the cool shirts that you were wearing. You remember those, those uh, some of the shirts you had back in the day.
0: You know, uh, I think, I think anyone from that era can relate to the black flag song. You know, like I had a skateboard, I was a surfer, you know, I had dreadlocks, I wore tie dyes. uh, You know, I, I, I put braids in my hair and shit, you know, like anything to be out of the norm of like, you know, Taravella, you know, redneck jock, like, you know, kind of rich kid, uh, you know, Z Haveriches and shit. And I was like, I, I don't have anything in common with these people. So, uh, yeah, I do remember having, you know, crazy hair and tie dye shirts and, uh, you know, <laughs>
1: That was always a stigma, like going. I, don't, I, don't, I thought like it was just me, but I felt like that was a stigma. Like if you went to school in anywhere in Coral Springs, people thought that you were like a rich kid.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. It. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, you know, there was there were a lot of affluent neighborhoods in Coral Springs. That's uh, true. for sure. Yeah. Um, we were antisocial at best. You know, we hung out in forests. Uh, if you grew up in Coral Springs, you know where that upside down glass building is on. Riverside and University, well, there's a forest right next to it. And it's still there. It is. Uh, and one day we found a couch and we brought the couch back in the forest <laughs> and that became the spot. And we went from there to Don Carter's uh, in Tamarack to, you know, the Everglades Dyke. And that was pretty much where we hung out. We didn't go to cool parties. We didn't, you know, none of us had cars, really. We rode bicycles and shit. And uh, we hung out in Tamarack a lot more, um, especially – especially once I got into high school and met like Les and Chris, and they were all, they were all, they're all grouped in a Tamarack. So
1: was the Everglades dyke you're referring to was that off sample. Uh,
0: no. End of Atlantic. Um, okay. And, and in those days you could also get there from Southgate and McNabb. Uh, this was before Sawgrass Expressway, which is now what 75 extension was even built. Um, you know, used to just kind of, and, and those were, where like parties were, there were huge bonfires, uh, the end of Wiles Road, the end of Locks Road, like it was no man's land. You could go out there and shoot guns and go off roading. When we were 14, we uh bought a Chevette for a hundred dollars off our buddy's brother who won it in a pool game at Don Carter's and we just used to drive it off road <laughs> and smash it into stuff. And like uh yeah. Yeah, Good it was, times. It was yeah, yeah, it was fun. And now I you know when I go back there you can drive all the way up to atlantic and there's a parking lot you know and uh for us when we were kids you ride your bike there and you ride out a mile or two in the everglades and there was nobody there was no cops right. there was no people there was no jocks you know like it was uh you could do whatever you want out there yeah not anymore all times have changed
1: <laughs> yeah sure have I sure have so what do you remember about the first ego trip show you played
0: that's a good question i can't remember what our first show really was um it was probably a lot of fun. Uh, there was a really cool hardcore scene in Miami at that time. And even though we were Coral Springs kids, we kind of felt like ego trip was based out of Miami. Cause that's where we played mostly Washington square, uh, the red room. Um, I think we played the junkyard once before too. Um, so it was, it was a, it was a pretty heavy hardcore scene. Um, the other three members in the band were, members of, of grudge, you know, which was like a, a skinhead faction, if you will, um, you know, very multi-diverse. Uh, but they were also like, you know, they would just South Beach was kind of of, of where they were. Uh, I don't, don't want to say headquartered or center. It's not like they were, <laughs> but that's where the shows were. Like you know? an organization like, or something. Yeah. You know, like the, the cameo was still open. Washington Square had a ton of shows. Um fifth streets had the red room on certain nights so they had punk and stuff there you know i was i was 16 years old you know so for me i couldn't get into the kitchen i couldn't get in half of these clubs i would go down there with a the skateboard and like hang out in the parking lot but the shows were the shows were pretty intense crazy pits you know you've been in south florida scene and it used to be kind of a, a violent scene that shows you know so it was, it was, uh, it was an intense experience playing an ego trip. Some of those, some of the shows you're just watching and you're like, you know, as a kid, I was like, holy shit, this is insane.
1: What was one of the worst injuries you saw take place at one of those early ego trip shows? Oh God,
0: I don't even, I I don't even know. Like my, my brain goes to not even an ego trip show it was nuclear assault at club new. And it, it was like one of the most violent shows I've ever seen. Like, the bands weren't even playing, and fights were just starting. You know, because they were playing like Anthrax on the PA, and it was just metalheads versus skinheads, and they would just beat each other. You know, uh, it was, <laughs> and, you know, uh, it, it was uh, okay. I, I it just popped into my head. So, being an ego trip was the first time I started playing out of town shows. Uh, in those days, Melbourne uh, had a place called the Power Station. Um, so John White, uh, who I don't think he's still a promoter. He lives in Seattle, uh, in Washington these days. Anyway, he would put shows on there and, uh, we came up one day and it was ego trip load. And there was a local band from Melbourne and, uh, one of the opening bands came out and, uh, dude threw a a C Kyle and that was about the end of it. Um, I watched one of our buddies get a table broken over him, like a, you know, full on restaurant table. And he just got up and was like, what you got, you know, uh, <laughs> Miami had a reputation for coming in and, uh, and wrecking the house. So, uh, and then during, during Lode's set is, uh, when all mayhem kind of broke out. And I still remember Bobby Lode being like, wait, wait, ego chip still has to play. <laughs>
1: Did you guys eventually get a chance to play or was it over? Yeah, we played.
0: Okay. Yeah, no, we played. Yep, we still played. Nice.
1: And, you know, you mentioned Melbourne was one of the places you got to play, you know, obviously in Miami. Did you ever get a chance in that, in that early period to play other parts of Florida besides those locations?
0: Um, in Ego Trip, I don't think so. I think it was like Melbourne. Um, I know they were doing shows in Vero Beach at this little schoolhouse. It was like an old, um, you know, turn of the century schoolhouse still had yeah. slate chalkboards and all wood and they would have hardcore shows in there. Um, I, I don't think I think we ego trip played out of town like two or three times um, and it was mostly up in Melbourne because we had that connection with John. And I don't I don't really think we played a lot of shows in Broward um, at that time. Like we were all still in high school. So. Um, and that's interesting because, you know, you were from Broward, right? You
1: lived in right. Broward. So why do you think you weren't playing as many shows in Broward?
0: Maybe availability. Maybe the fact that some of the kids we knew, like uh, Lindell and Rabbi, um, who were booking shows in Miami. Um, and that's where that's where the hardcore scene was. Like Fort Lauderdale in those days uh, was still like, you know, rock candy cover bands and hair metal. Um so I think our, our sound really didn't, didn't fit so well um, in that era. Like, you know, was that somewhere around 88, 89?
1: I think Lindell worked at Blue Note, right? In Miami. That's correct. Yeah. What are your memories of some of the record stores back in that period? I know you mentioned some of the ones in Springs. What about some of the other locations?
0: Um Far Out Records by by far was the one that stands out the most, you know, cuz that was a broward location and Tim had um Tim Bogonis had, you know, such an in- influence on the South Florida punk scene um with Far Out Records as well, uh, a label as well as a store. Uh yesterday and today was a good one. Blue Note uh, of course. I um I didn't have a car till I was 19 years old, so I didn't really get a chance to go. There's a place called Record Haven in Margate on Atlantic, and it was uh, just, just this little store that was dedicated to only metal stuff. Like that's where you got your Maiden T-shirts, that's where you got your patches and your records and stuff. Um, was it called Record Haven? Memories. Yeah, no. I don't have a lot of brain cells left. There was uh, a, there
1: was a place in Coral Springs, and I. For the life of me, this, it may have been more towards the later Mm nineties, but there was a place in a strip mall in Coral Springs and it was a small little shop and he would cater to all the death metal and heavy metal. You go in there and find, you know, obituary t-shirts and that sort of thing. And there was no,
0: If if it was off Atlantic in that shopping plaza where it's now a Walmart and stuff, um, I believe that's Record Haven. Yeah, I believe it, that was the name of it. It could have been.
1: Yeah, my memory is like I can't for the life of me I can't remember what that place was called. But I remember the guy was just—he was very quiet, and uh, you know, he uh, he just got a lot yeah. of great stuff. There was no other place like that around town you can find Uncle Sam's. There, maybe that was about it.
0: Uh, yeah, I don't I don't know what year Uncle Sam's opened. Uh, I mean, of course, in the mall you had Camelot and Record Bar, um, and you know, in those days metal was popular, so. Uh, I mean, I can remember like the, the cardboard cutouts for Master of Puppets, you know, before it was released, you know, and you're, you're like, oh, the mall's going to open. I'm going to go buy Master of Puppets, you know. Um, and then, of course, Sid's records. Like once you find Sid's, uh, that's where you went because it was always a gold goldmine, uh, especially before Jimbo Smith worked there um, <laughs> because Sid didn't know what he had. And in those days, you know, I mean, shit, these records were a dollar. Uh, uh, but I, I, believe the story goes is one day Jimbo went in and like found treasures and like bought it for like a very low amount of money. And he's like, you should hire me because these records are worth a lot more money. <laughs> and then, you know, um, uh, and then having, you know, people, you know, work at record stores is always, uh, a, a plus. What were you doing
1: work-wise back then? What kind of job did you have or did, you, did you, were you working at all?
0: uh let's see uh in the high school years i worked well depending i started working when i was about 12. my father decided to retire and then decided to invest in a deli in the coral springs mall so he used to force me on the weekends to go in and work at that place Uh, and that's where i met all like the coral springs metalheads from that side of coral springs Cause that was that was the wrong side of sample and we uh you know <laughs> i never knew there was such a thing <laughs> uh you know it's it's always it's always a joke you know uh, yeah. a running joke um so yeah i got to know like the kids from from that side of Coral Springs. coral springs is a pretty pretty big town um i mean it's much larger now than it was when we grew up there but yeah, so I worked in the deli and then let's see around 16, 17, I worked in the Coral Square Mall as a short order cook at Golden Greek. And then like after high school, I uh, I worked in like uh Jimmy's Pizza. I worked for those guys for years and years and years as like a delivery driver and prep cook and um then once I started going on the road, it was really easy to be like, "Hey guys, I'm going on tour for like 2 months and uh I'll see you when I get back." They're like cool.
1: <laughs> what was the first band you went on tour with? Uh, Baghdad.
0: Baghdad. Yeah, Radio Baghdad. So Radio
1: Baghdad. Uh, we talked about some of the members already of that band. I know uh, Les has been a guest on the podcast uh, twice, mm-hmm. and Pete Gross has been on as well. So what I do like you what do you remember about the uh, the early beginnings of Radio Baghdad?
0: Um, face value. At that time, um, they had a warehouse off Dixie. And like I said, when I when I got into high school, um, I met like Chris and Les and um, Scott Norman. And I used to go on Friday nights when they would practice and Face Value was like my favorite band. Um, they were like something I hadn't ever really heard before. And and even those guys, like when I first started meeting them, um were giving me stuff to listen to. And this is like, this is punk when it went like peace punk era, like seven seconds on ourselves and uh soul force revolution. And they were, you know, giving us like early Goo, Goo dolls and soul asylum uh, could and stuff like that. And, and just listening to music that was way more melodic punk than I had, you know, I, I had ever heard, you know, when I was 10, I remember listening to angry Samoans because i had never heard curse words in a song before. And, Uh, You know, like I I had an older cousin who was a big influence in music. uh, So I'd heard punk, but I never really got into it. Uh, And they started um, kind of influencing me towards that. So once Hawkins got to high school, he actually joined Face Value. And he must have been 13 or 14 years old, you know. Uh, And Chris, you know, is is an amazing guitar player. So um, started going to band, you know, to, to their practice every single weekend and just listening to them play. And when ego trip, let's, let's see the timeline here. <laughs> um, I'm not sure what year they changed the name to Baghdad, probably 88 or something like that. Uh, I believe if you ever talked to Chris Goldbach, it came from him and and uh, it was about the time that the first desert storm was kind of happening. You know, we were going out to... Uh, Conflicts in the gulf And he said he kept hearing Baghdad radio Baghdad radio and he just flipped it And uh, put it as one word Uh, The original bass player Chris Left the band in 92 Like just after I graduated high school And I got a phone call one day and they're like Do you want to play in a band And I was like are you fucking kidding me Yeah of course I do Like you guys are my favorite band Um, So the rest is history from there
1: (laughs) (laughs) And you're good friends with these guys Right you've been for a long time All
0: right yeah yeah correct uh we all live in different locations now but uh we just did a reunion show in july so i think that would be like the last time we had all played at that as that lineup was 1998 wow
1: did you think after all these years that here you are playing with the band that uh no you played with so long ago do you think you still be doing it now
0: um i always had a feeling that you know we we would play a reunion show if we could pull it off and put it all together uh everybody lives in a different state now the only person who still lives in florida is Les, um but uh we had an opportunity and we just we made it happen so it was a lot of fun yeah but baghdad had had so many lineup changes over the years you know uh at first you know it was It was Lester, Chris Pabone, Chris Goldbach, and Scott Norman, and then Hawkins joined the band, and then Scott left the band, and then Gary joined the band, and then Hawkins left the band, and then Scott came back to the band, and then Ponch left the band, and I got into the band, and then Pete Gross joined the band. Like, it was – there was a lot of different – and then Pete Gross and Spikey were both playing with Collapsing Lungs, so they left the band, and John Bindle, uh, who was a drummer for Hudson – Uh, And the shrooms he played with us. And I think we even have like a a recording um, that somebody posted on, on YouTube um, with him playing drums on it. It was cool to have that. I mean, once we started touring, that was the core lineup was, you know, two Pete's, two Chris's and a less. That's a good mix. Yeah.
1: I think Baghdad, it was like the main band you were in where you put out the most output. Is that right?
0: That would be correct. Um, Spikey is, is a fanatic about recording. Uh, even when it was like a little four track thing and we do it in his parents living room or we do it. At, we, we were always making recordings. We were always putting out like our own tapes. Um, and then once we kind of met Jeremy Stoska uh, from studio 13, um, what the hell does the name of their band? It's on the name. Of the tip of my tongue. Is it not sinful lust? Is it sinful lust? Sinful lust. I don't know. Is that it? Was that was that Jeremy that, Stoska's band? I think it was.
1: <laughs> I, I think it was. Sinful loss, yeah. Yeah,
0: that band Shock Mom. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the world's most aggressive primate just got mad Shock <laughs> Uh yeah, so then we started recording it at, you know, uh Studio 13. And if memory serves, I believe. Uh Spikey found like an ad in the back of uh, Maximum Rock and Roll and it was a German label looking for bands to put out. So he sent him one of our, you know, demo tapes and uh, we signed Friendly Cow Records and they put out 120 years. Um, and they were like, hey, look, we don't we've never been to the United States. We don't know anything about, you know, touring in the United States. But if you guys can get to you know to germany we'll put on a tour here for you so we definitely made that happen and that's where we started touring that yeah. was um uh, spring of 96 i think
1: okay yeah sounds about right uh yep. what was it like recording with jeremy
0: um a lot of weed <laughs>
1: i've heard that come up many times from what again yeah
0: yeah yeah definitely um it was always a good experience we always recorded live and went back and did vocals. So I mean we would practice four nights a week, um, you know, for several hours until we were tight, 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 tight. And then we'd just go in there and bang everything out. So it was, you know, this was before Pro Tools, uh, this is when everything was recorded to tape. Then uh, you know, dats came along, you know, digital audio tape, and then like uh I'm trying to recall what record it was, like, you know, um, where things changed and got into that like DAW interface and, you know, like where, uh, it it started to get really, really advanced, but, um, it was fun. Those days were great. Um, I personally hate recording. Uh, it's my least favorite part of being a musician because I'm a semi perfectionist and I'm a really sloppy musician. So (laughs) I'd have to go back and listen to my bass lines or, you know, guitar work. I'm like, Oh God, can I just do this over (laughs) <laughs> you know, um, is there a certain song in, in the Baghdad years
1: that you're just really proud that you made?
0: Um, my favorite album, which now has a title that's uh, hooked on Ebonics, is my favorite Baghdad record. Um, it's our fa- – every time I listen to it, I'm like, is the tape speeded up? Like, or were we playing that fast? Like, it is, it is a fast, aggressive record. Is it behind his back? I don't know. I had to go through all of these songs, uh, you know, when we were practicing for the show. Um, I go back and I listen. I'm like, all right, you know, I was a pretty decent bass player. Uh, I'm not going to complain on that one. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> um, but yeah, that would that would be my that would be my favorite record that we did. Um, we also had a habit of like recycling certain songs. I think "Chances When is on every album we ever put out. Someday, for some reason, which was a song written way back in like the in the eighties uh by face value and we we kept putting that one on records for some reason also, and usually had the year behind it someday ninety seven uh, someday ninety three uh, so no resurrection, I think, got kind of the most notoriety because it made it to the blasting room comp um, so we recorded. 665 um with uh with Bill Stevenson and Stefan Egerton um out of the blasting room in, in Fort Collins. Um and still to this day, like uh I will shamelessly admit every time I see Bill Stevenson, I'm like, oh dude, we recorded the blasting room. He's like, Who? And I'm like Radio Baghdad, and he will literally start singing the lyrics to No Resurrection. Uh it's happened three times now. Last time I saw the descendants um i did it i was standing there in the back and i waited purposely for him to walk by i was like hey bill you know uh and it happened to hawkins and i we went to punk rock bowling one year and we we ran into bill in the in the lobby and uh we're like yeah we're going to baghdad and he just starts fucking singing no resurrection (laughs) it's pretty funny um i could be wrong but i
1: think baghdad may have been one of the only band one of the only florida bands that stevenson recorded
0: I I don't know the, the facts on that but it, that yeah. uh, could be uh somebody yeah. fact check that. <laughs> yeah, right. Do you have a fact checker over
1: there? <laughs> I don't. No, unfortunately not and it would have to be me. So uh but yeah, so one of the things that also came up on Instagram was uh memories of the haunted warehouse. You you know yeah. what that's all about.
0: <laughs> so uh Chris's uh Spike's brother-in-law, you know, had some property along Sample Road and for a really long time we practiced in this it was like an old medical facility from like the 60s like doctors offices and 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 there was always like weird shit in there and it was right next to a Crayer funeral home that had a crematorium in there so sometimes you'd go to bra- practice and you could smell the bodies being cremated um after we we Got out of there, we moved into this huge uh warehouse. It was like a big kind of U-shaped thing. Um, and we knocked out a bunch of, it was like a storage unit thing, like real janky with like, you know, uh plywood storage boxes. So we knocked a bunch out and cleaned it up and <laughs> built a built a little quarter pipe in there. And uh his brother-in-law was like, You guys aren't skateboarding in here, and they're like, No, 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 it's a sound barrier. Uh, we use it so it blocks the sound, and he totally bought it, which <laughs> was just hysterical. Um, but, yeah, it was creepy. It was creepy and dark, and we would have shows in there sometimes. Um, I think uh, Good Riddance actually was in town, and their show got canceled. Um, so we, we hosted them, and they came and played there. Um, we always had like, little parties, and it was right across the street from the cell block on Sample Road. The cell block and the porthole pub. Uh, we're right there in that vicinity. so um, we played there often because we could literally just wheel our amps across the street uh, <laughs> and play over there. I don't know about haunted. I personally don't know if I believe in ghosts or not, but uh, you know some weird some weird freaky shit would happen in there uh, that you just can't explain doors yeah. closing, things slamming, things falling off the wall, shadows in the shadows. You know, I don't know what I saw. I, I smoked a
1: lot of pot. <laughs> you mentioned Crer. Actually, I worked for Crer once upon a time, and uh, and uh, so yeah, and I worked for another funeral home in in Davy, and I remember, uh, you know, hearing some things from time to time. So uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Could be. <laughs> so during that during that period, though playing at that warehouse were there other warehouses you also would practice in and play that other bands from the area may have shared similar warehouses with baghdad or maybe shared warehouses along the same
0: strip yeah collapsing lungs uh we shared we shared a similar space for a while um before i was in the band they shared a space with marilyn manson um these were like like all the old warehouses off of dixie uh and old mcnab And in those areas in those days, I don't know if it's still like that. Um, They, there was not, they were industrial areas. There was train tracks and there wasn't a whole lot of people living there. And if they did, it was very low income neighborhoods and nobody gave a shit. Uh, So nobody ever called the cops. Um, So you could practice, you know, till midnight and nobody cared, but it was always like storage facility warehouses, big bay door, you know, um, sweat your ass off in the summer all the time trying to practice. We shared a warehouse with load uh, off of Dixie, um, right? Uh, if you know where the Dixie Pig is, it was right across the street from there. And there was also Charlie's Rustic Bay Inn at the end of the Warehouse Bay, which is a fucking legendary bar. Which I'm not sure of Bimini Bay bars what it evolved into, but uh, I'll leave those stories for a different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's
1: one of your What's one of your favorite Bobby Load stories?
0: Uh. Phew. Gosh, there are a lot of them. Probably banning him from my apartment in Fort Lauderdale. Um, <laughs> um, let's let's think. I Bobby, mean,
1: wait, wait, wait! You brought that one up, Pete. So what happened about? Well, <laughs> you know, we used to
0: have a lot. Of, we used to have a lot of after-hours parties, and uh, uh, you know, I, I don't remember how it happened, but uh, I remember that he got banned. And one time. He came and with with Pat Joyce and like uh, there was a huge parking lot of, of a bank across from the and he's just sitting in Pat's car and I remember coming out there I'm like what are you doing he's like well I'm banned from your your house so I'm just sitting out here and I was like shut the fuck up Bobby like come in here you know I I, I knew Bobby from from way back uh, you know Ego Trip played with them like I said I was 16 years old 17 years old um, but Load was like my favorite local band. Uh, the two times in my life that I've gotten a concussion were at load shows. One was at Churchill's and I smacked my head on that pole right in the middle of the dance floor. Uh, and you know, Jeff and I were, were closer friends and I used to jump up on stage and sing along with them because I fucking loved load so much. And Bobby would get mad at me and would be like, Oh, your band already played. And Jeff would be like, fuck you. He's a fan. And they would get on, they would get into a fight on stage about me singing and shit like that. So, uh, that our relationship was it wasn't contentious but you know like uh, <laughs> a lot of the times it was it was like that
1: yeah you mentioned uh, churchills what are your memories of seeing shows there
0: um my first show there i was i got lost i turned down the wrong second avenue um and i was driving this little tiny subaru justy with a 215 base cabinet in it like uh and i you know i i had never driven through those parts of miami in those days and um i was i was a little freaked out at churchill's because on that corner you were totally safe but off that corner in those days it was uh it was real you know it was real seeing hearing gunshots you know seeing people get mugged or whatever uh homeless people but on that corner you were safe uh there was a little dude, Joaquin. You gave him two bucks, and your card didn't get your card didn't get fucked with, you know. And he would draw a little picture of you and stuff. And and then you, you as I would go to more and more shows, you would uh, you'd start to know some of the people. And then one dude used to bring me like curried goat, you know. And you were just eating like awesome like Creole food and. Uh, and back in the day, it was, you know, it was a, it was a fucking dump. Like if you ever took a shit at Churchill's, you should like, you, I think that was when COVID came out, they're like, if you ever took a shit at Churchill's, then you're immune to COVID or something like that. You know, uh, it was fucking gross, man. It smelled like piss. Uh, usually we would just hang out in the parking lot and get lit cause nobody cared. You would bring your own beer into the place at times. Um, and I, I stopped going there after a while. It just started becoming a hassle and I was like, Now I have to pay $8 for a Newcastle because your bar was in a movie or something. I was like, I'm not, I, I I started to dislike going down there um, after a while, but uh, the early days were chaos. Yeah. It was, it was a lot of fun.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've I've heard a lot of stories and uh, unfortunately I missed that early period, but uh, I did get a chance to see Baghdad at the Coral Springs Civic Center, because <laughs> I lived I lived right across from Mullins Park. So it, right. was, it was walking distance, and Baghdad played uh, one of the chaos shows, and uh-huh. I had a chance to walk over there. And I'm so glad you sent me a picture of Baghdad playing at the Civic Center, because I haven't seen many pictures from that period. So what was it like playing in a place like that?
0: Um, it was kind of cool. I, I'm pretty sure the first show that we did there was Hurl. Uh, so that was like after 92. It was Hurricane United Relief Live. Uh, there was a whole bunch of bands, and it was fun. Like, that was the first night I met Jason Morgan because WKPX um, was a sponsor or something of the show. And I, remember, I think it was like Collapsing Lungs and Radio Baghdad. And I, I know Les has the flyer somewhere. I don't even know if, if Marilyn Manson played that at that time. Um, and I think that was the first show. And then they started doing a series of shows in what I'm assuming it was like the gymnasium. And it was great. Cause I was like, all right, this is like kind of hometown. Um, and all the kids can come out cause it was all ages shows. It wasn't, we weren't playing like squeeze and reunion room and Rosebuds, and, you know, where it, it had, it was 21 and over for most of those venues. um, so like the civic shows were were all ages and all the kids could come out and I thought that was fun just to see like you know that the scene is still alive and I think a lot of bands kind of came out of that uh, that era you know of, of of Coral Springs kids going to shows there yeah but, um,
1: they were all ages you know that was one of the few places you can go and yeah. see a show you you mentioned Marilyn Manson a couple of times did you ever play any shows with them
0: no not that I recall i've only seen i only saw them once uh they opened up for suicidal tendencies At uh it was the button or someone's on the beach and uh they got booed off stage <laughs> i don't even think they had a drummer at that time it might have still been a drum machine and brad and scott and brian and uh you know i mean they're playing to a crowd of like a bunch of dudes in suicidal hats, you know, and like standing there like this. And they, yeah, they were not (laughs) well-received. Definitely Uh,
1: not, definitely not the crowd you would expect
0: to be fans of. No, like, I don't know how Marilyn Manson got to open up for suicidal tendencies. Um, that was, uh, an an odd, an odd booking to say the least. One of the pictures you
1: sent me is, uh, of Scott, uh, uh, on stage with one of your bands called the clap, which I think was that mostly a cover band,
0: Uh, all covers,
1: all cover band. Yeah. Did you have any kind of relationship with him prior to that?
0: Yeah, uh, Scott and I were were pretty close. Um, I miss that dude a lot, actually. Uh, I didn't know him during the Manson years because I wasn't a fan of Marilyn Manson. You know, I was was way more into into punk rock. Um, And the night that he and I kind of became friends, uh, I think we had just gotten home from touring uh europe or something and and we were at the poorhouse, and uh i walked up and he was very condescending and sarcastically like oh radio baghdad you guys are so cool You just got back from europe and blah 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 and i didn't know who he was and i walked in and i asked the bartender i'm like who's that fucking asshole in the army jacket you know and they're like scott i'm like scott who and like scott poteski he was in manson and i was like oh really and i walked outside and i just ripped him a new one about not having eyebrows and wearing fishnets and carrying a lunchbox, and just totally ripped into him and uh i'm like (laughs) so later that evening he came over and he's like hey man uh i'm having some people over at my warehouse after the bar closes uh i'd like you to come by um and we just we kind of just hit it off you know uh we became really really good friends and and i think one of the main reasons is cause I always, you know, Scott had a, a huge reputation as Daisy Berkowitz, you know, and had a huge following. And, uh, I always told him I'm like, your music sucks. And like, <laughs> I was like it sucks and blah, blah, blah. So like, you know, I wasn't just a fan or something trying to, trying to beat his buddy or whatever. Um, even though I had always offered to play the bass for a three ton gate and, you know, uh, whatever other projects. he was I working love the three
1: ton gate. I, I really yeah, love that. Project. I like
0: that I way better. I mean, Scott had like, you know, his, his sound was uh, like nobody else's, you know, he had, he, you knew if he was playing because of his tone and his style. Um, but yeah. Uh, so anytime the clap would, would play like uh, he would always get up and sing. Where's my mind, which by the way, every time we played that song, like always incited, violence like because the girls would get into the pit and somebody would get pushed and then a fist fight would break out and then the whole bar would turn into <laughs> like a, a melee uh that happened several times at the poorhouse uh at a clap show usually on halloween um
1: did you all play a different arrangement of this it's a pretty chill relaxed song no the most no that's the part. thing
0: and that's the thing and like it was always like uh no we didn't play it any faster or heavier or anything uh we, we kind of stuck to the to the original format of all the songs that we did um it just i don't know why i don't know why the pixies just inspired violence in, in <laughs> at our shows but
1: i guess uh, in south florida doesn't take much
0: <laughs> so. uh, that is that that was also the truth um,
1: <laughs> did you ever get a chance to see scott's
0: cover band the linda blairs
1: play i don't
0: think so i remember that but i don't think i ever i ever got to see them play
1: I saw them play at a place called Dastardly's off 441 in commercial. And I saw them play at the Roxy off of uh, Federal twice. And uh, they were a lot
0: of fun. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Who else was in that band? I don't even, I don't remember. I don't know.
1: I don't know the names. Uh, it's been too long. I still have my t shirt, though. They had a Linda Blair. They had a Linda Blair's t shirt. And on the back of it, in Blood Splatter, it said, Kill Bob Saget. <laughs> <laughs> the irony there so yeah, right. uh, <laughs> but they dressed That's in drag. they dressed in drag and they would do uh uh i think it was mostly i memory might be off but i think it was mostly like 70s and 80s covers nice yeah so yeah so yep. baghdad definitely got a chance to tour overseas in europe what are your memories of touring uh with baghdad overseas
0: that was such an experience. Um, the first year we went was 96, you know, and getting off the plane and taking a train to, you know, Central Station in Amsterdam was like, um, you know, we were all just dumbfounded, you know, we had never seen architecture like that. We had never seen, you know, a city that old and felt like we were at like a set at Universal Studios. And then it was like, oh, wait, we can walk into this cafe and get beers and hash and like... uh it was it was we were blown away and then the shows and the exposure to like the european punk scene which was was pretty different from what we were used to um you know a lot of our shows were at youth centers and uh like anarchist squat houses and the just the reception was so much different you know like people there really love to hear you play and really want you to keep playing. In fact, they wouldn't let you stop playing. Uh, There were a couple of tours that we did that our sets were like three hours long. We would play literally every song that we had. Then we had a list of cover songs that we would do. And there were even nights that like we would just make shit up just to keep playing. You know, they don't they they don't ever want the party to stop, especially in Germany.
1: (laughs) Three hours Um, is a long time for a punk rock band to
0: play. Dude, tell me about it. Tell me about it. And then they want you to party out. Oh, we make party, you know, like afterwards. And wonder you keep going? i like, bro, I've been making party for like a month. Like, <laughs> I just want to sleep, man. I'm sick. I'm sick and I'm tired. Uh, but, you know, I'll never forget you know, those experiences ever. Um, just just the energy from some of those places. And, uh, you know, you have your good shows and you have your bad shows. And then you had to deal with also like uh, the people who thought it was cool to to have, you know, anti-American sentiment and start fights and, you know, like, uh, there, there was, we were in Bruno in the Czech Republic and some like agitators came in and Lester actually got punched. And, uh, then it was like, somebody's got a gun and uh, you know, it was, it, it, there were some, there were some crazy times, you know, like, uh, a lot of the times some people were great. You could have awesome conversations. Some people really did not like the fact that we were from the States and, uh, you know, they're like, you are a capitalist enemy. And I'm like, bro, I live in a band with like five people. I haven't taken a shower in a fucking week and I'm playing in a, in your fucking squat house. Like I'm, I'm not the enemy, bro. You know, (laughs) you might need to find somebody else to blame that on. These are very, very small instances. I mean, most of it was a lot of fun, a lot of partying, great people. I mean, I still have friends uh, in Europe from those days and like 1997 uh, Hawkins after the tour stayed for, two months, three months, got a job at, at Trashmark, uh, which was like a, a merch company. They press t-shirts and stuff like that. And you know, he lived in Germany for a couple of months after the tour. And once Car Bomb started going and, and I had friends over there, I would do the same thing, you know, I was like, okay, tour's over. I'm going to hang out. And, uh, I had a partner for a minute that lived in Germany. So I would, I would stay there for a few months and just kind of live and float around. It was it was great experiences, and Like I said, we still have friends till this day, you know, that we met in, in 96. So we're going on almost 30 years.
1: Was that the last time that you had a chance to play music overseas like that?
0: No, um, no. Carbomb went quite a few times. Um, see, Carbomb started in about 2000. Uh, we went once on our own for a tour. And then we did a really large tour with uh, No Use for a Name uh, useless ID, uh, from Israel and Bigwig from New Jersey. And that was like, uh, it started in California, went all the way up across Canada and down to Boston. And then we flew to Europe for, um, uh, a whole month and, you know, toured all across Europe, uh, with carbon for that. And that was an insane tour. I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was crazy. It was like 15 countries or something like that. Wow. Um, Yeah. And then, uh, once uh, uh, Car Bomb ended, um, a few years later, we decided to do a little tour. And we got Joe Jit uh, from Shakers to play drums. And uh, it was me, him, and Spiky. And we just, I think this was 2006 or 7 And we just went for like 14 days, 10 shows. Uh, and had a blast and was super well received. And then the following year, we took... Uh, the Shakers and Radio Baghdad did a tour with <laughs> Spiky playing guitar, me on bass. Uh, Lester couldn't make it. So last moment we got John Owens to fill in. Uh, he's been in, you know, Seville, Anchorman, Bacon Andes. Uh, so he filled in on vocals and that was a really, really fun tour. I think Adam Construca came along with us and Malt a Riot played a few times. So then the next year, I thought we were going to go, uh, again. And they, they just did malt like the riot and the shakers, uh, and Baghdad didn't go. And I, I moved to the following year out of Florida. So yeah, I think 2008 was the last time that I, I, I got to play overseas.
1: What for you was the biggest difference playing in Baghdad and playing an Irish car Um,
0: having to be a singer and a frontman. um, The last tour 1998 that Baghdad did, we did a U.S. tour with um, Digger and from PA and uh, Lester didn't come to Europe with us. So we were kind of forced to sing. Um, We all took turns like me, Hawk and Spikey and and Pete singing different songs. And then when Carbomb formed, it was it was we kind of had the same feel. You know, we 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 would write songs and we would all sing. Originally, when Carbone first started, uh, Hawkins and Spikey would switch back and forth between drums and guitar on certain songs. And then it just, uh, as we started getting a little bit more serious and, and going on the road, that kind of ended um, to be more solidified, I guess.
1: Was singing out of more of necessity or did you really like just enjoy doing it once you finally had the chance to do more vocals?
0: I don't mind singing. I like it. I hate my voice. Um, You know, when I listen to recordings, I feel like I sound like an angry Muppet, you know, because I my my lyrics are extremely juvenile and I just yell like a hardcore guy. You know, (laughs) Um, what I didn't like was being a front man. I did not like having to crowd banter. Um, I'm, I'm a fucking idiot and stupid shit comes out of my mouth all of the time. So having to, you know, forcefully make up something to say to the crowd was was terrible. I hated it. Uh, what, what, was,
1: what was one of the most awkward moments you had doing that
0: uh gosh i mean i had some fun doing it uh we played jacksonville we were on tour with uh lag rufio and yellow card and uh we opened up the show and uh i was like hey what's up our car bomb we're from fort lauderdale and the guy in the front row is like you fucking suck you know and uh so i'm like oh we suck i'm like you probably never heard us before i was like hey let me ask you a question i'm like do i come to your day job and slap the dick out of your mouth and the whole crowd you know like two thousand people was like ooh, we just busted into a song and i was like all right that was that was kind of awesome uh good one <laughs> 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 uh yeah that was that was pretty fun um i'd have to say it was like an, in uh, a write-up that we got we played somewhere in canada and it was an all ages show and we were, this was uh, the Frostbite tour, and that was uh, the Mad Caddies were the headliners. Um, and It was like Choke and Pulley, Closet Monster, and Us. And uh, we had partied pretty hard in, in uh, <sighs> Toronto or something like that, and I was talking about it, you know, and uh, the guy who wrote the article found it pretty inappropriate what I was talking about at a, an all-ages show and, you know, like gratuitous drug use or partying or whatever, you know, and, uh, at that time, once I read that, I was like, I'm a fucking idiot. <laughs> but you know, like I was forced. They're like, go to talk to the mic, got to talk to the crowd. You got to like say stuff. And I'm like, like I don't want to. And then, um, uh, sometimes I guess we were on tour with no use and we would do a cover and, uh, matt riddle i would always like you guys in the old school hardcore punk songs or something like that and i think i regurgitated it one night because i didn't know what to say and he called me out at the show and he's like yeah i would have said if you are you guys in a you know old school hardcore punk but uh, the asshole in the first band already said that or something like that <laughs> and I was like, uh so yeah i'm glad i don't have to be a front man anymore
1: Those sound like they were they were pretty fun times you know looking back of on that. course
0: yeah of yeah. course
1: so Irish Carbomb uh, played with a lot of a lot of bands that, you know, uh, you mentioned, you know, I know No Use For Name, Wagwagon, Pulley, and there were several that you called out. So during that period, was there ever any talk with any of the labels that were around back then to perhaps put out a record from you guys? Yeah,
0: um, we were we were on Purple Skunk Records, um, Tommy Berman out of, out of South Florida, and um after our first record, uh, our guitar player, Shannon, um, was from the West Coast, and he had worked for, uh, you know, bands as a tech and a driver for a very long time. So we got to talking with Fat Mike uh, when we were playing some warp Tour shows, and he was pretty interested in us, and he really, really liked our first record. So there was there was talk of, of putting out our next record on Fat, and he had a showcase one morning at, at Warped Tour at, like, way too early in the morning on the main stage <laughs> way too hungover and like 90 degrees at 10 o'clock in the morning you know um but that's that's where the talk was and uh he it just it kind of fell through the cracks and uh i saw him a few years later and i i uh i happened to actually was driving no effects around like fort lauderdale after a show they played at, at revolution and i i straight up asked him you know like uh whatever happened with signing the fat and he said honestly man like i i really didn't dig your second album and it's really hard to sell records and i thought that was like one of the most genuine answers i could have heard and that was kind of that uh it would have been awesome if we signed the fat records but yep. uh radio baghdad was on some small labels we had friendly cow in germany and uh one foot records which i don't know if they even still exist um i want to say that he was out of Texas, but I'm not, I'm not really sure. Yeah,
1: I think it was out of Texas.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that was about the closest uh, that we came to signing with. Um, I guess they're still an independent label, but a larger independent label.
1: At what point did you guys call it quits?
0: Um, I want to say around 2004, 2004 or five. I think Hawkins had moved out of town. Yeah. I don't remember. I don't remember actually the actual year that, that we, we decided to stop playing. Uh, we only put out those two records. We self-released our second one, I think, also on Purple Skunk. Ain't quite right. And then I don't think we had anything after that. Yeah.
1: You regret not doing like a seven inch or anything like that?
0: No, not really. I think Carbom was was what it was. You know, it was, it was a fun band. It was a great project. We had some fun songs. We did some really fun tours. Uh, met a lot of great people. Like I said, we did it again in two thousand and seven with with just the three of us, and then people kept asking us about Radio Baghdad while we were over in Europe. So the next year we did Baghdad. I'd love to do a Car Bomb reunion show as well. That would be fun. Yeah.
1: How does make you feel, you know, hearing people still bring up, you know, bands like Radio Baghdad and Irish Car Bomb after all these years?
0: I mean, it's great. You know, I'm glad that people still listen to it. at the At the Baghdad show, there was some tall dude with dreads, and he was singing like every single word. I'm like, I I don't know who this person was. You know, I'd never seen them. He was much younger than us, but he knew like every word to our uh, to every song. I was like, this is great. Um, I I like to think that we had you know maybe some influence on the South Florida music scene, and and uh, I I like the fact that people still you know. Recognize us for, for being in those bands. I think, you know, Baghdad had a much more, uh, much more longevity than car bomb did. Um, they had been around for a really long time. And and when that scene was just kind of like, you know, exploding in in the, in the nineties in South Florida, uh, I, I, I look back at that whole time and it's very nostalgic because it was unlike anything today. I talk about it with with I'm, I'm in a band now with somebody who had never played in a band before until we we started this and you know we're on instagram we gotta make posts and we gotta do this and stuff like that i'm like you know flyers used to be you cut out a bunch of shit pasted it to one page xerox that and then ran off a bunch of flyers you know super diy really punk rock nobody no graphic designers were making punk rock flyers for local bands in those days and uh and then You'd go out on Thursday night and you would fly or squeeze in the reunion room and uh, kitchen or not kitchen uh, uh rosebuds or whatever, and you'd be in the parking lot you know and you'd be seeing people from other bands and you'd hang out and you'd talk, "Oh, and' your show and this and that and you were, you'd get back to your car and there'd be like five flyers under windshield you know for all the shows that were happening and the scene in the '90s was just so i guess eclectic you know like you would have shows with 10 bands and none of them sounded the same you'd have a metal band you'd have a funk band you'd have a james addiction sounding band i mean there was like baloney sandwich and the itch and uh fuck i can't even remember half the bands (laughs) from that era and you had you had wkpx which was like a, a huge promoter for local bands you know um a certain percentage of, of what they played like was supposed to be local. And you could totally like selflessly, you know, uh, shamelessly self-promote and be like, Hey, can you uh, play that radio Baghdad song? And they would play Stanley Bing, you know, and, um, they were, I, I thought that they were like a really integral part of, of the South Florida music scene. Um, you had Jason Morgan, uh you know, who's hudson and, and the shrooms he had two hours of rubbish on fridays and would just play all you know uh punk from that area a lot of fat epitaph kind of stuff uh you had ellen goldberg who had a show on like mondays or tuesdays and she would play more of like the kind of indie punk and like pop stuff you know like super chunk and jaw box and you know that side of punk and uh I thought I, I just you know that that was to me it's it's really really nostalgic you know being able to turn on the radio and like hear so many like cool local bands and cool punk bands and not have to listen to like Zeta or W S H E or whatever right. the fuck you know, those cr- crappy classic rock songs like if I heard Hotel California one more time I was gonna fucking blow up a radio station you know <laughs> like, I remember
1: I remember late at night though it may come a little later but Zeta had its own Zeta goes local where they'd play oh, yeah. they play like bands like the Goods. Uh, okay. I remember and other, you know, bands from Absolutely. that, that period. Yeah. So, yeah. but yeah, KPX, I still have some, some tapes, not a lot. I probably have two or three I used, I used to dub uh, whatever I could off KPX. So like stuff, I'm sure I still have some stuff, probably Baghdad's on there, maybe quit uh, yeah. against all authority. Nice. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I still have my, so in high school there, the janitor in my high school was this punk rock lady who had gone to Terravela and she knew my cousin and we'd started talking. So she started giving me all of her cassettes from uh Bob Slade's show, you know, WRLN off the beaten path. Uh, right. And I had, I had never really listened to it before. You know, I mean, I think, I think Chris Goldbach won tickets to every fucking show at the cameo off that show, you know, uh, But yeah, I mean, there was, there was, there was that radio show as well. Uh, Not something that I unfortunately tuned into enough, but, you know, uh, uh, Bob Slade managed load for a while and he was also an integral part of the, of the punk rock scene down there. Um, I don't know what he's up to these days. I think he was in the load documentary. I'm not sure. I've only seen it once or twice, but yeah, I think having that, you know, uh, really, really helped. And like I said, like the, just the nostalgia of looking back on that scene and, and, uh, CityLink Link Music Fest or XS Music Fest and um, like shutting down downtown Fort Lauderdale and, and Radio Baghdad getting shut down by the cops at Tavern 213 because uh, <laughs> there were too many people and the owner got like moshed to the ground or something and grabbed the cops. and The cops came in and shut us down, and, you know. My dumb ass was like, Fuck the pig, start a riot. And uh they're like, You're gonna you're going to jail. You need to shut up right fucking now or you're going to jail. He said, like one glass one beer bottle breaks, I'm taking you to jail for inciting a riot. And I was wow. like
1: okay. <laughs> Was that the closest that you ever got to getting arrested at a show like uh, that?
0: Um Yeah, probably. But, you know, the positive side is it uh, it I created a relationship with the local beat cop down there. Uh, later that night, he saw me. I'm like, I'm sorry, man, I'm not causing any trouble. And uh, after that, you know, in those days in downtown Fort Lauderdale, there was nothing. You had the tavern, you had the poor and a couple other spots. And uh, he would see me and if somebody was smoking pot. He'd be like, hey, man, can you go tell your buddies to stop smoking pot? So I don't have to arrest anybody, you know, <laughs> like uh, so I kind of. You Know as a positive that came out of that, I, I ended up being friends with Mike. So, uh, let's see, there was an incident at Mullins Park, um, before I was in the band where I was technically emceeing the show and I was being quite inappropriate and a lot of profanity at a family event at Mullins Park, and the cops pretty much took me off the stage, and uh, there was also at the civic center where I was wearing a Hollendale police chief shirt. And I kept introducing myself as officer Richard head in the microphone and, uh, Carl Springs cops didn't like it.
1: <laughs> That's the worst place to do that. Cause the police station oh, man, man.
0: right around the corner. You know, I was such a fucking idiot. Uh, I was way too fucking punk for my own good in those days. And, uh, like I said, uh, alcohol on a microphone in front of me, a lot of stupid shit came out of my mouth. It was, it was a different time. That is for sure. Yes. Uh, you know, in those days, punk rock to me just meant fuck you, <laughs> you know, uh, that's, that's kind of where it was, you know, what does punk rock mean for you today? Um, it is a very different scene. It is definitely more inclusive. It's definitely less violent. I mean it was always accepting you could always be like kind of a freak but people still got shit you know uh i I think the youth today is is definitely more inclusive you know um they're more accepting of of everybody um not to say that we weren't it was just it was just a different scene and from what i hear you know it's it's much less violent uh than it was you know back in those days um i i haven't really heard a lot of new punk rock that that does it for me anymore my musical likings through my life has has always changed uh I listen to a lot heavier stuff these days you know um i need i need tuned down guitars and fucking blast beats and you know like real hardcore shit yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah there's some good stuff still coming out of that that genre for sure and of yeah course, course but at the same time, stuff, you got the classics if you look at my, fall back on
0: yeah oh yeah totally i mean i i, I Asheville here uh, has a lot of cool little punk dive bars, and there's a there's a great DJ that like every third Sunday will uh, do like afternoon set for like two hours, and he's he's from Gainesville, and he'll play he'll play some killer stuff, and that's when they're like, oh dude, you got Radon, you got Asshole Parade, you got Them Builder Ass Panther UK United Thirteen, like the Gainesville scene man had so many killer bands that came out of it, so that's always fun, you know, and, and of course you're hearing. Any kind of old school punk stuff when you're out at a club is always nostalgic, and you're like. But in my personal, I mean, if if you went to my Spotify playlist, you know, like uh, there's you know Black Breath, and then there's Fevery Corporation. So <laughs> my musical likings are all over. Yeah,
1: and uh, nothing wrong with that. Having you? you're in different moods, and you know, it's of course you got to have a a nice mix of stuff to play. So you called out several Gainesville bands back then you know, being so far South, you know, it was always tough. I felt like in some cases they get all the way up North to go to like Gainesville and stuff like that. Did you ever get a chance to make it up there to see some of those bands play?
0: Yeah. Uh, Baghdad played in Gainesville a lot. Um, we would play Gainesville, Tampa, Orlando, uh, not Jacksonville in those days. Um, that was, that was car bomb that would go up that far, but, uh, yeah, especially in the mid-90s, we were playing Gainesville quite a bit. That's when the hardback was, like, kind of the focus. And there was also house parties um, all over the place. I mean, right. Gainesville had – so the, the student ghetto there was, like, the coolest neighborhood ever. The first time I, I saw that, you know, like, standing at a 7-Eleven, like, dude with, like, green dreads and a mohawk and blah, blah, blah. blah. And I'm like, fuck, this town's cool. Like, you know, <laughs> we don't have that down south. It's not. It's not – as as common to see you know maybe at a show but not like at the grocery store but there was there was such a cool music scene in gainesville through through the 90s um i don't know if it still exists i haven't been back there in a long time but yeah uh yeah we used to go up there and play all the time because a lot of our friends moved up there um and went to school or some of them just went up there to live because uh, it was different than south florida but um yeah i've seen fan builder ass i've seen Radon, and um, I think I think we played with Pantro UK. We played with Hot Water Music back in the day. Um, the the best show that I can remember was a house party at a friend of mine's house, and it was Radio Baghdad and Load, and we fucking destroyed that dude's house. Like I mean, it was it was insane. Uh, Chuck from Hot Water Music's head went through the speaker in my bass cabinet, and like the most rock and roll thing I ever saw was Jeff Tucci smash a beer bottle on the symbol and slide the the neck of the beer bottle and use it as a slide on his guitar. I was like, Oh yeah, it was such a fun show. Uh,
1: those are the <laughs> moments that are just lost to the ether because they never yeah. re- were recorded, you know, and you just have them in the memory.
0: Yeah. It's true. Like, you know, you don't have, it's a blessing and a curse. I'm extremely happy that people didn't have handheld, uh, you know, video recorders in those days. <laughs> but, uh, but like you said, a lot of those things were lost, you know, it wasn't captured. Gladly, we, we uh, definitely um, captured a lot of our European stuff. Uh, Lester always brought a camera with him, you know, a video camera to record. And uh, one of our buddies, Mike, would always just randomly show up while we were on a tour. And he, he would have one or he would take Lester's camera. So there's a ton, a ton of video footage from our tours in Europe through the 90s.
1: Where can people find you these days?
0: Um. Well... I'm in Asheville, North Carolina. I'm playing drums in a band called The Tiny TVs. Uh, it's kind of rock and roll. You can find us on YouTube. Some old videos that we had from some some live shows. We're looking at getting into the studio and recording a record. Uh, this band definitely needs to be documented. It's been fun. We we started it as just a a couple of friends I had mentioned before. One of the guys had never ever been in a band before. Barely played the guitar. And we're like, you're going to play bass. He's like, I don't know how to play bass. I'm like, either did Sid Vicious. Look how cool he is. Why is that comparison there? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so, um, you know, it was like, well, what do we need to uh, to be a band? I'm like, we can get a drum set. I was like, I guarantee you tomorrow we'll buy a drum set for 100 bucks. And everyone's like, no way. Woke up the next morning, went on Craigslist, found a drum set for 100 bucks, and just kind of started jamming. And after a few months, uh, we had like five or six songs. I'm like, these are pretty fun. And um We ended up booking a show and after that, it just kind of snowballed. Somebody recommended us to play another show and then it just, uh, Asheville has a pretty small local scene here. So it's, it's just been a lot of fun. We've played most of the the venues here and uh, it just, it's just keeps on rolling. Um.
1: Now you mentioned to me um, off mic that you
0: were going to be considering
1: moving back to South Florida.
0: Yeah. A situation has occurred that I have to relocate back to Florida for a while So if anybody listening or watching this wants to play some really heavy music, I would definitely be interested in, um, yeah, something tuned down, really heavy, possibly instrumental. Nice. I'd love to to get back to playing guitar. Um, Drums have been fun, but I don't really like being a drummer. It's hard work. I fucking sweat a lot and I have to carry a ton of gear. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and you know and and this is the first time i've gotten like the drummer syndrome like i was at a party and somebody was talking to me and somebody else and they're like oh yeah that band with that guy and, and he's like oh yeah that's pete and he's in tiny tvs you're like no no no, not him the other guy with the with the blonde mullet and they're like yeah tiny tvs pete's in that band and the guy looks at me dead in the eyes and goes i'm sorry i don't recognize you from being in that band and i'm like fuck i'm the drummer <laughs> like, <so. laughs>
1: that's funny
0: uh, yeah so, yeah uh I'd like to get back to playing, playing yeah. some guitar and hopefully you can um, find some people to, to play some music in Florida.
1: Well, hopefully yeah. so. And uh, so, uh, you know, it's been great having you on the podcast, Pete.
0: Yeah, it's been fun going down memory lane. I mean, there's, I, I had a list of things and I, I touched on I'd say about 70% of them. There's, there's so many things that you can talk about. And, you know, uh, uh, we didn't touch on the clap all that much. That was, that was a really fun project uh, for a long time. Uh, probably the most money i've ever been paid playing in a band in a cover band so wow also south florida if, if you need a bass player or a guitar player for some shitty 90s cover band like i'm totally down <laughs> <laughs> <You're> <laughs> I'll my to job.
1: wasn't uh rob elbow was in the clap right
0: yeah yeah so the the clap came about in just about 98 Baghdad broke up and the holy terrors broke up so uh Mike Baksusis, uh, who was the drummer at that time, was a a good friend of ours. And we're like, hey, let's get together and, you know, just jam, play some cover songs or something. So we came to the table and it was mostly like 70s, 80s punk and new wave stuff, a lot of Devo, some cheap trick in there. And like, hey, we're not too bad at doing this. Let's book a show. And then it just it it exploded. It was uh, it was definitely a trip. You know, we would we would play the poorhouse and play three sets you know, like a real, like a cover band, you know, <laughs> and it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. The clap was, the clap was awesome. I, I, I never thought that as a cover band, we'd be as popular as we were.
1: Did you have a favorite cover to play?
0: Uh, yeah, probably "Alvita Scene" from Cheap Trick. I've got a gun from Channel 3. Like we, we, we had one time, man, the list was so long. We had over a hundred songs that we would play. Um, Devo of course like I'm a I'm a huge Devo fan so you know uncontrollable urge is is one of my favorite songs and uh I w- I would get to sing that one and play that we actually dressed up as Devo once for Halloween and played the four house those plastic suits are very hot so I don't suggest playing shows in them <laughs> I can imagine <laughs> uh but yeah like you know uh, we would cover Elvis we would cover Got a song that I've been looking for on the internet by a band called A Go to Hells from St. Petersburg. Yeah. Uh, and I'm pretty sure the song was on like a no idea comp, and it's called Back in Florida. And it's such a good tune, and I cannot find it anywhere. There's no record of it on, yeah. on the interwebs anywhere. Um, that was always a fun song to cover. Uh, was
1: there any song that sounded good in theory, but when you went to play it, it just, eh, no, that didn't come off the way we hoped it would.
0: Um, probably, probably, I can't, uh, I can't think of songs that we dropped because of that, because of that reason. I mean, I always messed up the, uh, Elvis song and we, we, oh yeah, probably so lonely by the police. Uh, one, I couldn't sing so lonely, so I'd have to sing salami. You know, and the backup parts basic salame, salame. Uh but like the the reggae breakdown just it was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. And and the dead Kennedys, man, the dead Kennedys are hard. Their songs are their song structures are, are different and their timing is, is really weird. Uh so playing some of those songs were a challenge to learn for sure. Yeah, I can imagine. Um,
1: it sounded like it was but, a pretty good eclectic mix of songs. <laughs>
0: crazy you know because rob would bring stuff you know like the gun club and like uh we you know jet boy jet girl and and i was always bringing more of the punk stuff to the table plus devo and hawkins you know was a huge cheap trick fan and uh and he brought elvis to the table and uh, yeah it, it was it was a really weird mix for a cover band uh you know the clash the ramones the pixies the dead kennedys and then we would try to throw like obscure ones in there uh i think one of the did you ever get a That's chance
1: to do Rob's podcast? That record got me high before?
0: No, I never have. I never have. Uh, I would have loved to because there's there's some cool records I don't think that had ever been done. I think I wanted to do uh, On the Mouth by Super Chunk, which is probably still like in my number one slot for a favorite album of all time.
1: Okay. Well, Rob, yeah. if, if you're watching or listening, yeah, you got to have Pete Gordon on <laughs> your podcast because he's got a record that got him high. <laughs>
0: it's very true.
1: <laughs> well, it's been great having you on. Hopefully we had a chance. You know, we talked about the clap and, and then thanks for bringing that back around. And, uh, and it's just been great having you on to tell your story because there's a lot of things that uh, may not have been known to people who have been around that, period who followed a lot of the bands you were in or played some of the bands you played in. So, uh, it's great getting a chance to chat with
0: you. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun to, uh, to share my view of uh, what the South Florida music scene was like to me and, and and coming into it It was a very, like I said, I'll keep bringing up nostalgia. You know, when I go back to thinking of how, how awesome it was, like, you know, just the different genres of bands and, and the scene and how it went from metal to alternative to punk and, you know, like, uh, It was, it was good times. It was good times in those days.
1: Totally. Uh, as we close out, I'm going to kind of give you the last word. Any closing
0: thoughts you want to share, Pete, before we wrap up the interview? Um, I hope there, uh, is part of the youth that listens to your podcast and, uh, you know, that, that kids are out there still playing music. And, and I think it's, I think it's a really, really important part, uh, of society for, for people to play music and to, for bands to still keep coming out. And I love seeing, the younger kids getting, you know, more and more into music at earlier ages and having bands out there, and, and I hope that people just keep that that dream going alive, man. Like uh, rock and roll will never die. <laughs> and you know, again, if uh, if I'm coming back to Florida, and anyone wants to play some music, let me know.